Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. Later in the show, and just in time for Halloween, we'll talk with Kevin Tracy and Shailen Berube. I'm pretty sure I got that wrong, but we'll fix it later. Of Ghost Light Theater. We'll be putting on Lizzie at the Divine Theater in Holyoke next weekend. It's a rock musical about Lizzie Borden. Yeah, you heard that right. Plus, we'll find out all about an incredible geological structure that is only found in Franklin County and how you can help to get it state-sanctioned with Professor Emeritus Richard Little. But first, oh boy, has it been a doozy of a week on Capitol Hill, what with us getting a new Speaker of the House and all, which no one was really expecting. Does this make a shift to Congressman McGovern's next few days? Let's find out. Is our long National House of Representatives Speaker nightmare over? In in, in one sense, and then the nightmare begins. So it's like, <laughs> but at least we have a Speaker. Time for our weekly conversation with U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, Worcester's Jim McGovern, a weekly segment we call McGoverning with McGovern. You can always send your questions for the Congressman at thefab413 at nepm.org. Let's start with the family that we spoke about last week, Abdul Okal and Wafa Abu Zaida and their one-year-old son, Youssef, who were visiting Israel and are now trapped in Gaza and have been for the last 19 days. I know that your office has been on on the phone with the State Department very frequently. What's the latest with this family from your district trapped in Gaza? Well, as of last night, they're still trapped in in Gaza. Uh, And it is frustrating as hell for all of us who are trying to get them out and certainly for their family and friends in the United States. And, uh, you know, and they are worried because they can hear bombs going off and, you know, missile strikes happening, you know, all around them. They're afraid they'll be caught in the crossfire. Uh, they, uh, they're running out of milk for their baby, and they don't quite understand why this is so hard. Uh, and to be honest with you, that is my frustration as well. I, I get it that everybody has to agree. The Egyptians have to agree. The Israelis have to agree. And you have to get some commitment that Hamas is not going to interfere. And what I'm told is that we, they can't get everybody to agree. And I mean, I've suggested that you know you have these convoys of humanitarian goods coming through the Egyptian border. They have to come back into Egypt. Why can't my constituents be be in the truck that's going back? I'm told that uh, it's a lot more complicated, but look, if this were any one of our families, we'd be out of our mind. So we're going to keep on pushing the State Department to move whatever they need to move to make this happen. Again, there's a concern that if Israel begins a ground war, ground invasion of Gaza, then Hamas will look at any Americans as potential hostages, and and it becomes even more complicated. Meanwhile, in your district, at both UMass Amherst and Smith, the students walked out of class yesterday. At UMass, they occupied the administration building. UMass students say they won't leave and they will risk arrest unless the campus disassociates itself with war funding, with organizations like Raytheon, etc. What is your office hearing in the calls that you're getting in response to the continuing situation with Gaza, with Israel? Where do your constituents lie on this issue? Well, they're, they're, they're um, pretty polarized, quite frankly. And, you know, people feel one way very strongly or they feel the other way very strongly. When I was home in um, Massachusetts last weekend, briefly, um, I met with the Muslim community in, uh, in Worcester, and we had a very, very over three-hour long discussion about you know, their concerns, and I understand where they're coming from. I also have received many calls from, you know, leaders of the Jewish community who also have expressed their concern that there's a lack of sensitivity to the brutality of the uh, attack by Hamas against Israeli civilians. So everybody feels strongly 
But I think it's important that we all, you know, that we understand that people have strong opinions because people have families and relatives that are directly involved on, the, on this issue. I have Jewish constituents who have family members in Israel who are continuing to be under siege, some of who have been taken hostage. By the way, hostage taking is a is a war crime. It's a violation of international law. There's no there's no justification for that at all. And similarly, the uh, counterattacks by Israel that are now having such a brutal impact on the Palestinian civilian population in Gaza, in my opinion, uh, that is also a violation of international humanitarian law. We need to follow international humanitarian law. That ought to be the outcry by everybody. And I get it. People have their strong opinions, but this is complicated. And I've called for a ceasefire. There's only a handful of us who have done that. But I think a ceasefire might give us some breathing space to get the hostages out, to get more humanitarian aid in, to get American citizens out of Gaza to be able to maybe figure out an, an alternative way forward, but it is this is a this is a horrific situation that we're we're watching unfold. As most people heard yesterday, the U.S. House of Representatives now has a speaker, which means if there were to be bills to appropriate funds for things like military aid for Israel and Ukraine, that this could now go forward. There is that November 17th deadline looming to fund the U.S. government, which is just weeks away. And Louisiana Republican Mike Johnson, the new speaker, unanimous Republican support. He's a new guy. He's only been there for a handful of years compared to old guys like you, Congressman McGovern, who've been there for a long time. You're welcome. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I know you have a lot of Republican colleagues, many of whom predate this whole MAGA win of the party. What are they whispering to you behind closed doors about what pushed what he's being called glowingly by the GOP, MAGA Mike Johnson, to the front of the line with such unanimous support? Well, I mean, it tells you who the Republican conference really is. There's there's no moderates left. Um, Or to the extent that there are moderates, they're afraid to say that they're moderates. They're all afraid of primaries and they're afraid of Donald Trump. The one candidate uh, who they put forward, Tom Emmer, who was the only one who was not an election denier, his candidacy was uh, was sunk by Donald Trump. So this is who they are, you know, and they're making no secret about it. I mean, in terms of policy, I mean, Kevin McCarthy caved on everything. You know, he did everything that extreme right wing asked him to do, whether it was on abortion or LGBTQ rights or gutting uh, important programs to help the most vulnerable in our country. He just he just caved on all of that. Uh, so at the end of the day, you know, I, as I've said, I mean, you know, it's it's the same menu, but a different waiter. But this is a guy who, uh, you know, played a major role in trying to overturn the last election. He wants a national abortion ban with no exceptions for in any cases where a woman's life may be in jeopardy. And he has been a leader in efforts to promote bigoted policies aimed uh, against the LGBTQ community, among a thousand other things. So, you know, apparently, you know, they, they're not afraid to kind of come out and open on these things and, and to be proudly MAGA. Well, this is who they are, and people are going to have to make a decision in the next election whether this is the direction they want the country to move in. Well, does this bode well for the Democrats for the next election cycle here? We know just in the certain places around the country where you wouldn't have expected abortion rights to have been uh, an issue that would have propelled more progressive candidates forward if he has been so staunchly and is so staunchly anti-abortion. He made a name for himself at the Alliance Defending Freedom, which was designated a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center with his uh, extreme views in regards to LGBTQ rights. Does this actually bode better for the Democrats' chances in the next election cycle because of the new Speaker Johnson? 
I think this makes the choice much more clear for people. I, I, I do think that the more people reject what, what uh, the new speaker, Mike Johnson, stands for, I, I do think that the majority of people in this country, you know, reject bigotry and they reject hate and they believe that women ought to be respected and their reproductive rights ought to be protected. I mean, I believe all that stuff. So, you know, I, I think this is this is a very, very clear choice. I also remind people that what's on the ballot is our democracy. This guy was the leader in trying to overturn election results in a number of states that Donald Trump clearly lost. This is kind of the new MO of the Republican Party. So these guys, it's like they want to win, and, and they know they can't win in elections, so they do things like try to figure out ways to overturn elections, that it goes against our democracy, it goes against our Constitution, and this is what this guy is all about. This is what the Republican Congress is all about. People need to understand that. This is important because if these guys get in and they begin to overturn the checks and balances that are, have been in place to protect the right of people to have a voice in their country's future, then it's going to be hard to, to come back from that. I know this sounds dramatic, but these guys are, are, are focused on blowing up our democracy. And I, I, I it's, it's very, very concerning. I think the only difference between Kevin McCarthy and Mike Johnson is Mike Johnson is a little bit more blunt in stating what the Republican Party is about. Uh, Mike Johnson probably declares that he's a MAGA Republican. The new speaker is so new there. I believe 2016 is when his he first started in the U.S. House of Representatives. So he is one of, I think, the first in 100 years to be this junior a representative to hold the gavel. He's also supposedly, according to many Republicans, not made any enemies yet and has a plan to keep the government running post November 17th. Have you heard any inklings about what this plan is all about and why the Republicans who fought so hard against keeping the government running previously and it ultimately ended Kevin McCarthy's speakership, what they may be willing to agree to in this new proposal that new Speaker Mike Johnson says he has? Well, I, I, I haven't heard about his proposal. I mean, the bottom line is I think the United States Senate is going to kind of dictate what a continual resolution looks like. We don't have time to negotiate a longer-term spending bill because we've spent the last few weeks watching the Republicans fight with each other. I mean, the House of Representatives has essentially been inoperable. I, I think they also realize that shutting the government down doesn't poll well. That's not particularly popular, uh, not only amongst Democrats and independents, but even amongst Republican voters, they don't want the government shut down. They don't want a disruption in services or our members of our military not to get their paychecks or whatever. Maybe because we're out of time, essentially, he will allow a uh, continuing resolution to come to the floor so we can then have more time to negotiate a longer term bill. But he hasn't he hasn't shown us anything. I don't think he has any. I mean, he, he didn't know he was going to be speaker until 24 hours earlier. So he, he, he didn't have anything. I mean, he, I said to him uh, yesterday that I, you know, I wish you well, and you don't have to agree on everything to agree on something. And there's something we agree on. We will work with you to try to get uh, passed. But the stuff we disagree on, we're going to fight. In something that's going on in the House of Representatives in a bipartisan fashion with another representative from Kentucky, where the new speaker is also a representative, you are leading an effort to free Julian Assange. Julian Assange from WikiLeaks fame, who was a darling of the left for a long time until the uh, election of 2016 and Hillary Clinton 
tell us about this bipartisan push to free Julian Assange, led by you and Republican Representative Thomas Massey of Kentucky. Yeah, well, I'm not a huge fan of Julian Assange uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. But nonetheless, I also believe in freedom of the press. I also believe in protecting the rights of those who uh, report uh, to people, not only in this country, but around the world. And Julian Assange has, I think, been punished enough. The idea of extraditing him back to the United States doesn't make any sense. It, 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 it's, it's, I mean, Chelsea Man- uh, Manning, who provided him the information that is so controversial that he published, is already out. Right? I mean, so, and he's been detained for too long. And it, it's just not right. You know, so this is not a question whether you like Julian Assange um, or you don't. I mean, I mean, we all obviously are frustrated with the role of WikiLeaks and, and electing Donald Trump. That's not what this is about. This is about the rights of, pre- of, of, of the press. I, I really do think that the world is kind of watching us here. How we react to this matters. And so I'm working with Tom Massey. He's a pretty conservative Republican from Kentucky. And, you know, we're, we're putting this letter together. To be honest, with you, I, the reason why I, I even kind of started to think about this was because I was on a train from New York City to, to uh, Washington, D.C. And uh, I went to get a cup of coffee and a guy in the, in the cafe car said to me, are you Jim McGovern? I said, yeah. And he introduced himself as Julian Assange's brother. Wow. So he was coming to Washington with a group of parliamentarians from Australia because Julian Assange is an Australian citizen and talking about how this is not playing well in Australia, the, the idea that we might extradite him. And what I meet with some of the Australian parliamentarians, which I did, and, and his brother. And in the event, and then I began to talk to some human rights organizations and groups that are, uh, advocate uh, the freedom of the press. And um, it became clear to me that it's the right thing to do. We, we should not extradite them. We should just end this and move on. You never know who you're going to run into on a train or, or down in I D.C. I mean, you can bend the ear of the congressman while <laughs> while he's commuting. That's a good. I know that the Four Rivers uh, kids from Greenfield came to bend your ear uh, and you gave them a tour of the Capitol. And that they, was great. Yeah, it was great. Oh, I, I, I got to be honest with you. You know what? With all the crap going on in the world right now, I mean, these young students are so impressive. I mean, we spent we spent a lot of time with them. I mean, they. And we, you know, we, want, we gave them a little tour of the Capitol. We went on the House floor, took questions and answers, and then they came back to my office. We had more uh, time to talk. But these are thoughtful, really smart, uh, really caring, compassionate uh, young people. I mean, if, if this is our future, we're in really good shape. We just have to not mess things up too bad so they can kind of come in and take over. I was very, very impressed with this uh, with this group of students. And uh, it was just uh, the highlight of my day yesterday. And I get to go and hang out with students from not too far from Four Rivers in Greenfield with the kids at Conway Grammar School who have over the last few years done solidarity marches in conjunction with the March for the Food Bank, which is now less than a month away, Monday and Tuesday, November 20th and 21st, Thanksgiving week. Congressman Jim McGovern goes the whole 43 miles, even though I've told him he doesn't have to. Half of the march is not even in his district. But Congressman McGovern has worked hard for many years to end hunger in this country. Last year, we went to the White House conference talking about hunger, nutrition, and health. There was some small bipartisan movement there. With this new House speaker, does this reignite a legislative effort on the federal level to end hunger? Probably not, um, but that doesn't mean we don't try. And by the way, the students from Greenfield, some of them are going to be marching with you too, uh, they told me, Monty. So Excellent. We, no, I, look, I mean, the progress we're going to have to make in terms of combating hunger is really going to have to focus on executive actions and us being able to do no harm to some of the funding that's already been appropriated. So we can make progress. It's, it's just not going to be maybe as dramatic or it's not going to be 
originated in in the Congress. But I'm I'm still a believer that we can get to our goal. And by the way, there are a million things that are, that are happening because of that conference uh, that don't get a lot of attention. But all kinds of collaborations are being formed, and there is progress being made to move us in the right direction. Sadly, hunger has increased in the United States. That's in part to everything from inflation to a reduction in benefits uh, that were put in place uh, during COVID. But we need to get there. We we can't be deterred and we can't be discouraged. And, you know, no matter what the politics look like here in Congress, uh, this is a fight that is worth fighting. I mean, this is a moral issue uh, that everybody should be concerned with. Meanwhile, we'll do what we can from the grassroots level. Next week, we'll kick into high gear in our coverage of what hunger looks like in the four counties of Western Mass. We'll take a tour of the food bank, the new building in Chicopee with the executive director, Andrew Morehouse. And you'll be hearing all about the ways uh, we can alleviate hunger in our area, both while we talk with our U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern and other movers and shakers in the anti-hunger movement in the 413. U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern joins us every Thursday. You can send a question for the Congressman, thefab413 at nepm.org. Thanks as always. Well, it's great to be with you and keep the faith and we'll talk to you next week. Soon we'll hear how one can take a bit of horrifying history and make it rocktastic with folks from Ghostlight Theater who are presenting a musical based on the life of Lizzie Borden. But up next, you've still got time to help make our state the first to have an official sedimentary structure. And we'll sit with Professor Richard Little to hear about the candidate for the post, Jurassic Armored Mud Balls. <laughs> You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. There are times in the world we live where it feels like you might not have any control of the destiny of things that surround us, but there is an opportunity right now for you to get involved in an important piece of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts puzzle, specifically in relationship to where we live in the fabulous 413, House Bill H3129, an act establishing Jurassic Armored Mud Balls, the official sedimentary structure of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And joining us is Professor Richard D. Little, no relationship to the guy who did amazing impressions in the 1980s, Rich Little. (laughs) In the words of our president, well, I'm delighted to be here tonight. (laughs) Uh, Professor Emeritus and adjunct professor at Greenfield Community College, a science educator who's in the Massachusetts Science Educator Hall of Fame because you, Professor Little, discovered Jurassic Armored Mud Balls. <laughs> yes. And you know, Monty, it's okay to have a good laugh or a smile when you say Armored Mud Balls. That is why, literally the main reason why we are talking to you, yes. apart from the yes. fact that if we want to make Jurassic Armored Mud Balls the official sedimentary object? Well, they're officially they are a geologic sedimentary structure. Uh-huh. Tomorrow is the deadline at 5 o'clock to advocate for these Jurassic Armored mud balls, all of which you're about to hear about right now. Exactly. (laughs) So before we get involved with the fun and too much information, let me just have everybody remember this. These are very unique and they're fun and they're interesting and they're photogenic features from the geological past 200 million years ago. That's Jurassic in time. And they are only seen here in Franklin County along the Connecticut River. Uh, That would be Greenfield, Deerfield, Gill, and Turner's Falls. In the whole world, 
they're only found here. Wow. So these features, which again, they're fun and they're photogenic and they're science, and they were rolling along. I'll tell you how they formed in a minute, but they were rolling along Jurassic streams right along with the dinosaurs, perhaps looking in on the, the whole process. But they are so rare that these deserve to be preserved and celebrated as an official Massachusetts symbol. And that would be the Jurassic armored mud balls as a state sedimentary structure. How many states have state sedimentary structures? Oh, and that's a great question because <laughs> we would be the first to have an official state sedimentary wow. structure. Massachusetts is something? filled with firsts. I love yes. that. Do we have yes. other state geologic structures? Oh, yes. Um, a sedimentary structure is something that happens in sedimentary rocks. You know, sand, gravel, and mud get washed into lakes and oceans and streams and so forth, and they form layer by layer by layer and eventually become sedimentary rocks. But what if something happens during the process of all that sand, gravel, and mud being laid down? For example, what if a dinosaur comes along and steps into the mud? That footprint is a sedimentary structure. It's also a fossil. So fossils are sedimentary structures because they happen at the time that the sediment is being deposited. So we have ripple marks and raindrops and fossils, and those are all things that are types of geologic sedimentary structures. Dinosaur footprints are also something geologically that originated from this area, correct? That's right. We were the first place in the world to actually discover and identify dinosaur footprints. Are your Jurassic armored mud balls going up against dinosaur footprints for the official sedimentary structure of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, Professor Richard Little from Greenfield Community College? Like, do we have to pick one over the other? You know, we already got dinosaur footprints. We got our own dinosaur, yeah, so, Holiocensis, so, uh, yeah, or whatever the yeah, name of that. Podocasaurus. Holiocensis, right? Holiocensis. Because of, um, and you can go, if you haven't already, go see the dinosaur footprints on right Northampton Road. Route 5 That's in Holyoke. Right. So in any event, you need to separate fossils out from sedimentary structures. So okay, fossils good. are a sedimentary structure, but lots of states have a state fossil. Um, so if we separate that <laughs> out, because fo fossils are, everybody knows fossils, yeah. right? right? But when you say sedimentary structures that are not fossils, you're talking about ripple marks and mud cracks and an armored mud ball. But uh, it's the first sedimentary structure ever to be designated in the United States, or perhaps any, I think I will say this, anywhere in the world, there is no country or state that has an official <laughs> sedimentary structure. And we can be the first. I, I'm going right out there on a limb, and I think we're the only <laughs> place in the world that will have this. However, let's put it back on the audience here. Yeah. We have to have community support. And we have a lot of scientists that have signed on to this. So it's not just me. Our state geologist has verified that this is indeed rare, rare, rare and only found in Massachusetts. And um, I have professors from almost every uh, educational institution in Massachusetts that have signed on to supporting this effort. But we need lots of people from the Commonwealth to say, yeah, this is a great idea. This is so rare. It's us that have them. We should flaunt it. We should save it. We should promote it. We should celebrate it. And we will give you the email addresses to your the Beacon Hill delegation who is responsible for handling this, and it will be up as part of the podcast after our conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's, that's great. And people can also just contact your state reps and state senators and say, look, I heard about armored mud balls. Please support this effort. <laughs> armored mud balls are found in other places in the world, but ours are different. How are they 
separate and unique? Yeah, thank you for that question, because people have seen armored mud balls roll down streams, you know, historically, like today, yesterday, last week. But they don't last. As soon as the sun comes out, they dry, they crumble. They're very, very, very fragile. But what makes our armored mud balls so unique is that they are lithified, that means turned to stone, and so they survive the depositional process. And maybe I should just say that what's an armored mud ball? Yeah. Right? It's a, first of all, how do they form? And, and it's, it's pretty simple. First of all, you have a flooding stream, and the stream undercuts a bank that's getting eroded. And on the stream bank, chunks of hard mud fall into the stream, and they tumble downstream, get round, soft, and sticky on the outside. And it's that stickiness that adheres pebbles from the stream bed into that ball. And the pebbles are the armor. See, no guns here. Yeah, <laughs> this is the kind of armor I can get behind. And I think <laughs> right. no matter what your political position is, maybe you yeah, can these, get behind. Yeah, uh, these support these. I haven't contacted the NRA. Maybe we can get some support. <laughs> maybe don't. Well, we don't want our mud balls unarmored. So the, the armor are these really pretty pebbles. And you folks can see the pictures I brought here. And they're also online, by the way. If you go to armoredmudballs.rocks. Wow. I didn't even know that was an extension. We have that. I thought we had arrived in the .org world, but now. No, no. There's so many extensions. Like my (laughs) my former employers had one that was .horse. But .rocks. Armored mud balls .rocks to see these because this is radio. But what we're looking at looks like, I'm assuming this is spherical, right? It is spherical. Yeah. And this black spherical rock with all these pretty other little pebbles stuck to it. But this is an actual Jurassic era armored mud ball? Yeah, that's that's one of them, yes. Uh, How did you differentiate? Because you, Professor Richard Little from Greenfield Community College, the first one to discover these. How did you differentiate them between contemporary armored mud balls? Yeah, well, contemporary mud balls people will find occasionally after a stream flood. But like I said, they don't last. They, um, they have to be buried and be turned to stone. So my story is that... Boy, I hope that this is not getting too boring. Audience, are you still awake there? <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm going to give you the 30-second the quick version. Anyway, it was 1969. Uh, back in 1969, I got a job offer from Greenfield Community College. I moved here from California. I was exploring the area of Franklin County, drove to Turner's Falls, and saw some blocks of rock that used to be part of an old suspension cable bridge. And these blocks of rock had round balls in them. And that was the first, my first exposure to armored mud balls. And then several years later, I had a chance to do some research and discovered that these are extremely rare. And also, for me personally, what was really exciting, no one in the geological world had ever discovered them before in western Massachusetts and along the Connecticut River, and actually in the whole Connecticut River Valley or anywhere in the United States, really, there's uh, very, very few of these. But in the Connecticut River Valley, no one had discovered them before, so I kind of became the discoverer of armored mud balls in the Connecticut River Valley. And after considering and finding out how rare they were in the world over the decades, it has become obvious to me that, you know, this is our treasure in Massachusetts, and everybody who sees them, you know, smiles or gets excited about them, and I'm talking everything from school kids in the fifth grade to professional geologists. (laughs) Professional geologists have never seen these in their work unless they come here and look at them. I guess the rest is kind of history. This has been my work to get these uh, promoted and celebrated in Massachusetts. So when you crack one open, what is the inside like? Yeah, well, you can see the picture there. It's just a dark rock on the inside, which used to be mud. The mud still hardens it, it, on the inside of it. It's a hard rock. Oh, I brought some with me. Oh, <gasps> yes! See how excited we got? He it wasn't just selling us a bill of goods. When he said he had them, we got so excited. 
<laughs> there are people though can see these at Unity Park in Turner's Falls, right? That's right. You can see, you can see them at Unity Park. The best place, however, is at Greenfield Community College, where we have a geology path. It's right by the uh, the main building, and you can walk along the geology path, and you will see six. Monumental size stones. Like how big are we talking? Uh, we're talking about the size of a school desk. Wow, okay. That's and they big have armored, armored mud ball. balls within <laughs> them, you know, within them. So anyway. there's a big rock, and then the armored mud balls are like kind of attached uh, to it uh, or yeah, inside right, it? Right in it. Yeah, yes. wow. Okay. Hmm? Do you have one on you? Yeah, I do. It's All right. The... Professor Richard Little rummaging through his bag of armored, of Jurassic armored mud balls, which we're going to try to see how many times we say armored uh, mud balls in the course of this conversation. Don't make it into a drinking game. You might hurt yourself. But do consider contacting your legislator if you'd like Jurassic Armored Mud Balls to be the official sedimentary structure of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Okay. Oh, Professor Little has taken what looks so, like a tile sample from Home Depot. That is so cool. <laughs> okay, so I will tell you, this has been mounted on a piece of glass, so it won't break. It's been sawed on a rock saw. It's about the size of a legal envelope, and it has two armored mud balls within it. Oh, yeah. And so you, you will, I'm going to pass it over to you in just a second here. Boy, they can't wait. They're just champing at the bit here. Boy, I wish we, we can't were, wait. I, 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 we need this on TV. You know, this would be. <laughs> Don't threaten any PM. Okay, so there we go. And you can see that oh, there's the, there's so the dark neat. mud. Yeah. And you can see the pebbles, the armor, stuck right around the rim. How and did, there's, there's two of them there. Yeah. Jurassic armored mud balls are the chocolate chips. I was going to say of sedimentary cement. structures in our area. They look like chocolate chips in this piece of rock. They do. They look really chocolatey. And the texture of them is just like, not only are they the little chip, but it's smooth in comparison texture-wise to the rest of the rock. Yeah. So cool. Yeah, because mm-hmm. that's mud. How did you figure out they were Jurassic armored mud balls? What's that process Oh, boy, look that's like? a good question. Now, if we could see this rock in its entirety where these are found, you could go in a few hops and a step into an area that was an old dinosaur quarry mm-hmm. with dinosaur footprints. And so the dinosaur footprints, there you go, Podocosaurus, you know, right. our state dinosaur. So our state dinosaur was leaving footprints just a few feet away from where these armored mud balls were found. And this is all layers, right? So and when we hit a certain layers. layer, we're like, okay, this is the Jurassic right. layer of That's where right. we're digging right now. That's right. That's right. amazing. Yep. So you know that you're in the Jurassic if you're right in the footprint zone there. Uh-huh. How did you get into geology to begin with? That's a really inter- interesting question, which might impact a lot of people's career because you just don't know. I went to college at Clark University. I had one more class to take my freshman year, and my advisor said, well, take something you don't know anything about. And I said, what's geology? So I got into a geology class, and there were field trips. And I specifically remember <coughs> learning about glaciers and how glaciers made these hills called drumlins. And we took a field trip in the center of Worcester where there's a park, and the field trip leader said, oh, you're standing on a drumlin. I looked around. I said, oh my God, really? This, the glacier did this and I'm standing on it? What clicked for me is that the natural world that we mostly take for granted has this wonderful history that is, uh, you might say, hidden unless you know just a little bit of geology. You don't have to be an expert, by the way, to figure this out. So learning Geo 101 and realizing that the earth had a history, that I was walking along and climbing mountains that had a history with rocks. So rocks and landscapes 
became uh, my emphasis. I went on to graduate school, got a master's degree, went overseas to a place called Iran and Pakistan and did some coastal studies there. And uh, anyway, then I got my job at Greenfield and here I am. When I got to the Connecticut Valley, I realized after a few years that this is the best place in the world to study geology. There's the igneous rocks, the metamorphics, the sedimentaries are all laid out right across the valley. And in just like 30 minutes in your car, you can go right across the valley and <laughs> see all these things. It was just so exciting and to find armored mud balls on top of it. I'm a very lucky guy. Outside of the armored mud balls, what's your favorite geological feature of Franklin County? Oh, you, you asked me a tough question yes. outside of the armored <laughs> I, I guess I would have to say it would be our lava flow. We have a lava flow that goes right down the middle of the valley. You see it in the Holyoke Range. You see it overlooking Greenfield and Deerfield. And if you do some nice little hikes into that uh, range, you see things like you see in Iceland, you know, or Devil's Tower in Wyoming. These are the, the column cracks, those columns uh, that are caused by the cooling of the lava. Lots of great, wonderful shapes it, right here in the middle of the valley. So lava, that's it. <laughs> 200 million year old Jurassic lava right here in the 413. <laughs> professor Richard Little, Professor Emeritus at Greenfield Community College. You also have a guide that people can get exploring Franklin County, your guide to amazing stories and rocks and landscapes that talks about armored bud balls and a lot of the geological history of this area. You've got like an illustrated comic book version of your story of discovering <laughs> armored mud balls that's perfect for kids who might be interested in rocks, etc. Facts on the back, too. So like it's not just a comic, yeah. not yes. just an informative <laughs> comic, but more. And... If you're somebody who has heard this maybe for the first time or have heard this before and think that Jurassic armored mud balls deserve to be the official sedimentary structure of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, you could write an email, but it must be in before 5 p.m. this Friday, October 27th. Email Jordan Latham in the House of Representatives or Haley Dillon in the Mass Senate, and we'll put a link with their emails up with this podcast after the show is over. And uh, good Thank luck you. to you in your endeavor for this thing that you have discovered, these Jurassic Armored Mud Balls, right. Professor Little. Could I say just one more thing? If you mm -hmm. go to the uh, armoredmudballs.rocks website, I will have uh, the bill name up on the website. And you can also find out more about Franklin County geology, the trails and the walks and the drives, and discover our wonderful geology right here in the 413. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sometimes I have no idea what the music bed is going to be, and then I have to try and catch my breath so that I can give people information. Thanks, Monty. My name is Mud by Primus. <laughs> I want to count how many times we said armored mud balls in that <laughs> segment and make a supercut maybe for the uh, social media. Where we're, it's probably a hundred times at least. And if you're going to go and uh, look at the actual act that's trying to be ratified, maybe that would be the thing that you're interested in. But up next, the musical, the macabre, and the history all rolled up in one as we chat with the folks from Lizzie, the Lizzie Borden musical, which opens next weekend. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. And it's spooky season, which seems like a good time to sing about historically infamous alleged killers. In the summer of 1892, Andrew and Abby Borden were found murdered, bludgeoned to death in their home in Fall River, Massachusetts. More shocking, Andrew's daughter Lizzie, 32 and living with her father and stepmother, was charged and prosecuted for the crime. Though acquitted at her trial, the world still wonders what happened that day. Why were these two people killed and what if any role 
did Lizzie Borden play in their deaths? Lizzie, the musical takes a rock stab at answering that. Written by Tim Maynard, Stephen Chelsick, DeMeyer, and Ellen Stevens Hewitt, Lizzie is a sweat rage revenge, is sweat rage revenge and guitar is not A, but like all of that pile. Yeah. Yes. The score blends many rock styles together, reminiscent of the bands like The Clash, Radiohead, Bikini Kill, The Luna Chicks, and Pink Floyd. Filled with earworms that catch like fire, the show is unforgettable. It's been described as a gothic rock ritual with a riot girl attitude, an eerie hybrid of rock club and a turn-of-the-century New England parlor by the New, uh, New York Times and local company Ghostlight Theater will be presenting this musical for two consecutive weekends starting on November 3rd and running through November 11th. Lizzie will take the stage at the Divine Theater in Holyoke. And with us today from the production are director Kevin Tracy and Shailen Barubi, who plays Lizzie Borden herself. Welcome. Hi. Thanks. Thanks for having us. I mean, I would like to ask why a musical about Lizzie Borden, but I feel like that that question answers itself. Yeah, yeah. I mean... The, my follow-up is why not? Yeah, it's already got a poem associated with it, which yeah. you hear, and which is what opens the musical there. And it's interesting how much that little childhood schoolyard poem has influenced the minds of what went on with this actual story. But, you know, I've known that Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave mm-hmm. her mother 40 wax since mm-hmm. I was very young. I didn't remember that she was acquitted, though. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> very, very quickly, essentially. Um so give us a little bit of, of backstory on, on Lizzie Borden for someone who might be new to New England and maybe never heard the tale. Okay, you can jump in. Yeah, you want. I mean, Lizzie Borden. We want to hear from Lizzie was, herself. <laughs> yes. Well, she hailed from Fall River, and um, she basically, I mean, there's all different versions and, and skepticisms on, on what her issues were, but her parents were murdered, and uh, she was the prime suspect. So... We've seen, you know, lots of different stories about what actually happened, and this is one version told through rock music. <laughs> and it, it, we said in the intro that Lizzie Bo- or, uh, that the the Bordens were bludgeoned. Was there an axe actually involved, or is that part of the mythology too? So the the nursery m- rhyme itself, as we know it, is riddled with inaccuracies. Uh-huh. But uh, it took it took <laughs> a little short, dramatic little license. Yes, <laughs> so much inaccuracy. Um, so they, they never actually found a definitive murder weapon. Uh-huh. And it was definitely not like a full-handled axe. Uh, it was uh, um, a, a specialty hatchet. I can't remember the name of it right now. Like we saw, we went to the Borden house and oh, wow. did the whole tour mm-hmm. and everything. And they showed us this was likely what it was. Hmm. Um, but it was definitely bludgeoned to death. And um, I believe the stepmother, Abby, was hit 17 times in the back of the head. Um, and the father, Andrew Borden, it was 11? Yeah. Yeah. That's and his right. face was essentially knocked right off of his face. Ooh. Wow. Yeah. So, but Lizzie Borden was acquitted of uh, taking an axe and didn't take an axe. Mm-hmm. And 40 is also fake. So basically everything. Mm-hmm. And yes. 41. Gave yep. her father 40 and 41. 41, yeah. Yeah. All of that yep. fabricated for mm-hmm. the Juilliard. Now, the musical, though. Um, when, when and where did you encounter that as Ghost Light Theater? Uh, I think it was January of this year. I, dude, I knew of it, and I think I'd heard it at some point, but uh, it was actually my birthday and in the morning, and, and I'd gotten an email that Lizzie was back on the menu, essentially. Yeah. And I let it run, and kind of, this is going to date me, but like those old 90s albums, or like when you bought an album, right. and you just kind of, 
let it play. Mm-hmm. And it was like the third or fourth time that I looked up and was like, wait, what was that? <laughs> and you know, like the, the moments start, they just kind of collapse in on each other. And then you just have this whole mess of beautiful music. And I was like, I really, really, really want to play guitar in this show. So you are. Wait, I know a theater <laughs> company. <laughs> We're speaking with Kevin Tracy from that theater company, Ghostlight Theater, as well as Shaylin Berube, who plays Lizzie Borden herself. Um, from what I've heard of the musical, it sounds like it's as much about the trial. It's not like necessarily a a gruesome cut em up musical, or is it? Oh, it is. Okay. <laughs> I couldn't tell from just the music alone. Yeah. Well, like I said, there's so many different theories, and I think this production is a compilation of all of these theories. And mm. so we get pieces of the trial. We get pieces of her journey of what may or could have happened based on, you know, rumors, um, whether it's her relationship with her father or something about the dress that she was wearing. Um, and it's all woven into this just beautiful kind of hypnotizing score um, that does culminate in the trial, but there's much more to it than that. Mm-hmm. But the cast is all women, so how does how does that sort of a palette end up allowing you to tell this particular story? Oh, it's so interesting because it's Lizzie and her sister and then their neighbor, who's also a woman, and their maid. So you're getting four stories in one, basically, of how this whole fiasco happened (laughs) from all these different perspectives. And we just have a great dynamic um, and it's just so juicy and, and beautiful. I can't wait for people to see it. <laughs> Do you get to play different factions of Lizzie as Lizzie, like the one who is maybe the murderer, the one who is the innocent when it comes at it from all these different angles? Oh, absolutely. I think in the first act, we see um, a much more lost and sad and, you know, scared Lizzie. Um, and then by act two, I mean, Kevin said it best. It's like post Anakin Skywalker after. Oh my word! <laughs> you know, like yeah. everything's this is after gone the down. Anakin, Anakin <laughs> took a saber and gave yeah. the younglings forty. I don't know. I'm yeah. Yeah. yeah, we'll leave it at he that. Did, he didn't need to give them forty. It's a lightsaber. <laughs> oh yeah, right. It goes right through like butter. I mean, the Bordens. It was overkill then, and it would be. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, for sure. (laughs) Well, why don't we take a little break here and we'll talk more about Lizzie the Musical, which is coming to the Divine Theater in Holyoke starting on November 3rd and running through November 11th. We're talking with Kevin Tracy, who is the director and guitar player shredder for this, and Shaylin Birubi, who is Lizzie Borden in the musical. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. When she saw what she had done. In the house of Borden, somebody left us quite a mess. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. We are here with some of the cast and crew of Lizzie, the Lizzie Borden musical, which will be opening at the Divine Theater in Holyoke. Next weekend, running for two weekends, November 3rd through November 11th, we have director Kevin Tracy and the actor playing Lizzie Borden herself, Shailen Berube. What has been the most fun about singing in this particular production? Like, especially modern musicals kind of play it a little fast and loose with um, character and and scores. Like, what's been fun about being in this production? Oh, everything. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I come from a musical theater background, and, and this, I mean, it is uh, musical theater, but it's rock and roll. I mean, we get to let loose. We get to do things we wouldn't normally get to do on stage, I think. Um, it's been just so fun just getting to the nitty-gritty and being able to rock out. And you said you wanted to play guitar for this show, but then you ended up directing it. Yeah, uh, I'm double dipping. Ah, nice. <laughs> so you are still playing guitar. Yeah, I'm still playing guitar. And you got a little taste in that intro there, but if you do listen to the musical, it is, it, it's a rocker. It's like a it is, kind of a heavy rocker. Yeah, the whole thing. I always describe it as rock metal. Yeah. because mm. uh, But there's punk in there as well. Right. Like, it's a really, it's an angry, loud, like, Jesus Christ Superstar was a great rock and roll opera, but this is in a different place. This is harder. This is... Your um, Farouk Assault has been, but like in the in the actual sheet music, it will say stuff like the tempo is one sixteen Marshall Punk. Think the Clash. <laughs> <laughs> it will say your rhythm should be like Izzy Stradlin's. I love nice. that yeah. Guns and Roses. Yeah, perfect. So that's great. And tell us, there's a live band. Then obviously, how many people are playing in the band accompanying this musical at the Divine? Yeah, there are six people in the band. So it's. Yeah, it's two guitars, a bass, a cellist, drummer, and our piano player, mm-hmm. who is our conductor as well. Nice. Is it, uh, when you have played this, and we'll be playing it over the next couple weekends, and, you know, violence is rampant in our country, in our world, from all the things we hear about, and this is an iconic, historic, violent story of a murder that happened in Massachusetts. As actors and human beings that are living in the contemporary world now, what uh, is it become a meditation on on violence for you as performers, or is that something? Is it is it portrayed in a way that doesn't even affect your psychology? That's an interesting question. Mm. I mean, I've I've been dying to play a villain for a while, and and digging into this role, you kind of have to compartmentalize a little bit and uh, bring yourself to places that are uncomfortable, um, and obviously do it with you know sensitivity to everyone involved. But um, I think the story that that I'm trying to tell as Lizzie, um, I I feel for her, you know, even though she is the villain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe in what she has to say. So I think you have to come from it from that perspective and hope the audiences hear that and believe that narrative as well. Do you feel like Lizzie Borden was uh, wrongly accused and was right to have been acquitted of this? Oh, you know, I'm, I'm not one. <laughs> I uh, the final auditions, we asked every single person who was up for a role, do you think she did it? And to a person, everyone said, yeah. Wow. Well, not a single person really expressed any doubt. Whoa. But was it you that said? I said, I think she did it. But in this story, I don't think she knows she did it. Oh, wow. Or I don't think she believes that, that she, did, she it. did it. Or is, is she's not in the wrong, you know? Yeah, I don't think she did it. In real life. Oh. <laughs> and a jury didn't think she did it. Yeah, right. jury the schoolyard poem mm-hmm. thinks she did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you can't get tried by it's the jury of your, of your peers to a certain Fall extent. Fall River but. and the environment around were totally behind her from the time she was arrested to the time she was acquitted. Really? Hmm. And she, she stayed in town. She basically bought a mansion on the hill and then was essentially ostracized by the community. Even well, though they were behind her saying that she didn't do it. Yeah. Wow. Whoa. It's, and I know yeah. that the, the stories say that her her father and her stepmother were, were particularly cruel um, and and perhaps kept her uh, too tight a muzzle. Is that true? Not cruel so much as cheap. They uh, ha- rich they were, but cheap. They right? were rich but cheap. <laughs> and both her and her sister 
were essentially idle rich. They mm -hmm. they did good works and they joined clubs, but they had no real job skills, so they were dependent on their parents for money. Mm. And Andrew Borden was a notorious cheapskate about just about anything. And he, they could get money out of him, but it took a long time. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. I mean, not necessarily anything to be, like, super villainized about as long as, I guess, people's needs are being... There's that line. There it is. <laughs> was it a lot of your production... Was any of your production informed by going to Fall River and seeing Lizzie Borden's house, like, experiencing some of what she gave to the world? Yeah, I think so. I think it was great for us to really be in, the, in where it happened yeah. and to see and to hear how it went down, supposedly, you know, according to historians. Is that what changed your mind about her guilt? Or did you did you always kind of think she was not guilty? Yeah, I think I'm I'm, I'm still wavering. We'll see by the end how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> there is a great moment in a rehearsal where uh, Carrie Maguire playing Emma, we're, we're just rehearsing a bit. She has to point off stage. And I'm like, like you're in the kitchen pointing towards that front door. And she's like, oh, yeah, I got that now. Yeah, mm -hmm. because so, she was because there we had in the kitchen there. where the front yeah. door was. Yeah. Nice. A perfect setting uh, for this time of year, the spooky season, to be contemplating musically this historic Massachusetts-based tragedy, the Lizzie Borden story. And I hear that if you go to Drag Bingo this evening at Divine Theater, you might have an opportunity to maybe win some tickets. Yes, you will definitely have the opportunity to win tickets tonight. And you will have already won. Because you're at Drag Bingo. I mean, seriously. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Director of Ghostlight Theater and guitar shredder Kevin Tracy and Shaylin Biruby, who plays Lizzie Borden in the Lizzie Borden musical called Lizzie that will start on November 3rd and run through November 11th at The Divine. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Tomorrow on The Fabulous 413, we've got a particularly full Friday. <laughs> With a woman-owned and all-woman-run farm in Sunderland. We'll do our Wine Thunderdome of sorts at a Harvest Festival in Leverett. And Live Music Friday with an 11-year-old FEMA, um, Louis Phipps. Plus a Media Lab showcase with Jeremiah Merced, who's talking to someone we know who has a brand new book out this week called Sir Morian. I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> it's you, Khalees. And Kevin even brought a book in to get signed by you. Yeah, it's going to happen. <laughs> Special uh, huge thanks to our tireless, fabulous 413 team. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. We'll see you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413.